Well, top of the morning to you. Um, it's kind of mid-morning, I suppose. Uh, and I'm sitting in rather lovely spring sunshine uh, at one end of the garden looking at uh, the lilac in blossom and um, some peonies about to burst and uh, the, the first of the roses. <sighs> it's, it's a bucolic scene, I'll grant you that. Um, and I feel like I've emerged from uh, some dark tunnel possibly a, a chrysalis slash cocoon which I, I think would also be dark uh, just a long winter of writing Essex Dogs Two Worlds of Winter um, tonally uh, the book reflects that which is perfect because it's about a long siege but um, emotionally I, I've been reflecting that too and not so nice uh, anyway, I, the spring is here, and I'm feeling I'm feeling wonderful about that. Um, this I've I've done a little count back. I think this might be episode 26 of first draft, the thing that's not a podcast. Um, that's been somewhat superseded by the thing that is a podcast. This is history, but I I still like to check in and do these now and again. So here we are, last Friday. I asked you to post your questions, a little ask me anything uh, styly, and so I'm going to I'm going to sit here and round them up. You're going to hear that pigeon, uh, it's sort of my hype man, I suppose, just chiming in occasionally with a whoop whoop whoop. You'll also hear some aircraft. Um, can't say I can't claim that as as hype. That's just because we're below the Heathrow flight path. So apologies for the, the somewhat lower sound quality on on this uh, episode of First Draft, the thing that's not a podcast, uh, than you get on This Is History, the thing that is a podcast. Um, but this is, this is just uh, a, a more rough and ready deal, full stop. Anyway, look, here we go. I'm going to run through these questions. There's several dozen of them, and we'll see where we go. Some of them I'll be able to answer. Hopefully most of them I'll be able to answer. Some of them I might not. You may have noticed quite recently we had a coronation. I say we, I mean the United Kingdom and, to be fair, the Commonwealth, like it or not. And Kelly Sadler, first up, wants to know, what would your playlist be if, and it is a huge if, you were being crowned king? If I were being, cra- if I were being crowned king, a lot of very strange things would have, uh, would have come to pass. I'm not that high up the waiting list, I don't think. But let's 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 deal in hypotheticals. I mean, who watched the coronation? Hands up. Yeah, well, some of you. Okay. They, I think they got it. They did it very well. There was a mixture of uh, old Bryn Turville giving it some Welsh at the coronation. First time ever. Feels overdue, to be fair. Um... Edward I having started things off quite a while ago with the old subjugation of Wales and, uh, you know, feels odd there hasn't been more Welsh in the coronation until now. I would continue that theme. I'd probably throw in some Welsh rugby songs. Those of you who know me will know I'm a fan of of the Wales rugby team. Uh, I probably wouldn't go for Delilah, the song about a man murdering his, uh, his partner, 
because that's been dropped from the rugby now and, and it's just not really in keeping with the times. But I might have Sospen Vach. A little song about a saucepan wouldn't go amiss. I say saucepan. Even in English I say saucepan instead of saucepan. Or Americans, skillet, whatever that is. Sounds like a, a bird you might shoot. I thought a skeet was a bird you might shoot for a while. Turns out it's a clay pigeon. I don't know what I'm saying here. Um, <coughs> little cough for you. I might also... I mean, my thoughts first went... You, you, look, you've got to have Zadok the priest. That's, that's just happening. My thoughts did go to... I think, I think the song is called Crown by Jay-Z. Let me look up... Uh, let me look that up. Sometimes I do these... Quite often I do these... Um, these recordings while I'm walking, because, but I'm sitting here today, so not only am I recording on my phone, but I've got a screen in front of me. Right, lyrics to Crown featuring Travis Scott by Jay-Z. Uh, you're in the presence of a king. Scratch that. You're in the presence of a god. Okay. Then there's some stuff about some people I've never heard of, like Scott Boris. He says, Scott Boris, you over, baby. Robinson Kane, are you coming with me? I think those are sports references. Uh... It's all good stuff. Hold on, I'm going to pause for a second. Sorry, I'm back. Um, yeah, so I think Crown by Jay-Z. I mean, it's quite provocative for a coronation. Uh, and yet somehow fitting. There's a lot of boasting about uh, having been a drug dealer. I probably would cut some of that for the coronation. Because it's not true. And also inappropriate. Um, there's there's a fair bit of shouting crown crown, which I just think you you can't you can't underestimate the value of just keeping it simple. So if it's a coronation, just shout crown crown because there are there are going to be people watching it for whom English is not their first language. You know that this is it's it's just gonna it's just gonna land well if you're just shouting crown crown. And then there's the, the, the chorus shit on me. These guys tried to shit on me. I was left for dead. They tried to wipe me out of your history. I don't know. I mean, it's not per se my story, but it does feel dramatic. So I might pop that in the old coronation. So there we go. We've got Zadok the Priest, Crowned by Jay-Z, and Sospenvach, the Welsh rugby song. I think th- those three together are really setting the tone for, um, <laughs> for my reign to follow. So thank you for that question, Kelly Sadler. Farida says, I have no questions. Well, that makes my life easy. She's too too busy trying to zoom in. Oh, I see. Well, yes. When I posted the uh, article with a call for questions, uh, I had... Uh, there were two pages of my edit for Walls of Winter, um, which was to illustrate my distraction and despair. Uh, and Farida spent a lot of time trying to zoom in and find out clues for the plot of Walls of Winter from those pages. That's fair enough. Um... Oh, and trying to decipher my handwriting. My handwriting, to be fair to me, is an absolute disgrace. That, I suppose, is one of the things, to continue the theme from the last question, that is one of the things that uh, the, the King Charles III and I have in common. This is appalling handwriting. Um, mine was destroyed by learning. Mine was pretty bad anyway. But uh, it was destroyed for good by learning T-line shorthand when I was in journalism school. Briefly. Um, but 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 if you could only keep three books from your shelves, says Steve Batty, what which would they be? Gosh, what a great question. Um, if I can keep three, well, 
I mean, I've said it before and I say it again. My favourite um, uh, historical fiction novel is American Tabloid. And I've got the um, the Everyman edition of that, which is bound double with The Cold 6000. These are sort of... These are books by James Elroy. So I'll keep that one because I reread... Uh, I reread American Tabloid just about every year. So I wouldn't want to be able not to do that. I would... I've been banging on about this for ages. Uh, and the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that War and Peace is the greatest novel. If you like history particularly, and, and, and the bits at the end of War and Peace, which I think some people get fed up with, where Tolstoy starts banging on about his theories of history, and, uh, and Napoleon specifically... Uh, are some of the greatest things I've ever read about history, per se. So I'm going to hang on to War and Peace. After that, really, gosh, crumbs. What am I saving from my shelves? Great, 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 great question. Um, I'm very fond of my large format Tashin edition of uh, the complete works of Jan van Eyck. I just love looking at it. So I'll probably, I'll probably have that as well. It's not... This doesn't feel as definitive as what are my three songs for my coronation. I feel certain about those. Sossman Bach, Crowned by Jay-Z and Zadok the Priest. I feel less certain about my answer to Steve Batty's question, but it's the only answer I've, I've got in mind right now. Um... I'm getting into The Last Kingdom, says Jessica Corsi. All right, don't show off. Which I know is based on a book series of historical fiction by the great Bernard Cornwell, yes. Do you have any favourite kings in England before 1066? Well, I tell you what. I've got uh, Edmund the Martyr, King of Kent, mm, killed by the Vikings, if you recall. I must have, I must have mentioned him before. Um... Tied him to a tree, shot him full of arrows after he wouldn't give them Kent and asked them actually to convert to Christianity. So, double insult for the old Vikings. They tied him to a tree, shot him full of arrows, cut his head off. There's some business about a, 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 a magic wolf guarding the head, this, that and the other, hence Berry St Edmunds. I've cut a few bits out of the story there, but, you know, you get the gist. Oh, I've, got, I've got the guy tattooed on one of my arms, so... Um, you do the math. I'm fond of him. I'm fond of him not because I think uh, Great King could do with another one of those. I just think it's a it's a fantastic story. So yeah, pre ten sixty six, that big boy. Um, right, Chris Ball four, who writes Chris Ball four's Substack. To be fair to him, says how do you keep track of random good ideas and thoughts that pop into your head when walking, sleeping, etc. I presume that creative inspiration doesn't appear only when sitting at your desk. Very true. In fact, some, a lot of the time you've got to get up from your desk to, to get that inspiration. Do you have a system or random notes to yourself you find years later? I have an iPhone and sometimes I, I make use of the same application I'm recording this on now, which is the Voice Notes app. So if I'm out walking the dog, I get a lot of, of creative inspiration while walking. That's something I have in common with music super producer Rick Rubin. Did you listen to any of his interviews on podcasts recently? I listened to the Andrew Huberman one, and I tell you this, Huberman's got a boner for Rick Rubin. <laughs> that guy, 
normally so unflappable, cannot contain his excitement at being in the same room as Rick Rubin and keeps trying to signal to Rick Rubin just how hip he is to the history of contemporary music uh, while trying to stay on course. Uh, he then Huberman simultaneously is trying to signal to his listeners that, yeah, he does actually have Rubin's number and sometimes they text. It's a bit sickening. But, you know, I, can't, I think I'd do the same. I think, I'd be, I'd, I think Rick Rubin has an effect on middle-aged men. Um, that, that drives them to that sort of thing. Anyway, sorry, what I was saying was that Rick Rubin says he gets lots of creative inspiration while walking. Um, me too. So we're basically bros, I guess. Uh, so but anyway, I make voice notes. I, I, I send a lot of emails to myself, or at least use the draft function of mail on the iPhone. Just jot down notes. Um... I tend then pretty much to act on them. I, in terms of like, oh, yo, I've got this, this like big idea. Sorry, I had to pause the recording there and now I lost my train of thought. I, I keep having to pause it because uh, people keep coming to ask me things. Um, what was I saying? I'm basically the Rick Rubin of history. I think that was the message, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, no, I was talking about having big ideas uh, and making notes for those. Well, I got a file on my or a folder, sorry, on my Dropbox called Miscellaneous. And if I've got a big sort of project idea, I might do a couple of pages on that and then stick it in Miscellaneous. But often i found through experience, once something goes in Miscellaneous, it ain't coming out. Miscellaneous is more like, let us never speak of this terrible idea again. Um... So, and I think that actually one mark of a good idea is that it'll stick with you. Um, and if it's if it's really compelling, it's going to stay in your mind. If 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 it's sort of fleeting and flashing, and you're like, oh my god, if I don't write this down, I'm never going to remember it. That might be a sign. I for me that it's not actually that good an idea because it's not especially memorable. It's not instantly memorable, even to to. I who am proposing spending years of my life doing it. Does that make sense? Whose medieval coronation would you like to? Uh, would you have liked to attend? Says Renee. Uh, any of them, really. Um, listeners to the actual podcast, this is history. Or recall, we were talking about Richard the Lionheart's coronation, uh, a very bro-heavy affair. Surprise, surprise. That might have been quite fun. I wouldn't. Hum, hum, ha. I tell you what, I tell you the one. For me. You're the one for me, fatty. A little bit of Morrissey for you. Um, it's, I wouldn't have gone to Morrissey's coronation because he's not a medieval king. Um, I would have liked to have gone to Charlemagne's coronation. Christmas Day, 800, in Rome. He's, he's all done up in the toga and whatnot. Um... I think that, you know, coronation of the first Holy Roman Emperor isn't the right term for Charlemagne, but, you know, the first Western Emperor in the revived post-Roman tradition. Give me that. That would have been pretty cool. Shanamaya says, someone else asked me this the other day, I'm looking for thesis topics, and one I'm thinking about is the Assassins. The other is the fall of the Templars, but that may be overdone. 
Can you point me to any great sources or books I could read to do some primary research? I've already ordered a book by Bernard Lewis. Well, the most recent book I can think of on the assassins is uh, The Ishmaeli Assassins by James Waterson, which I've got on my shelf in the office. Actually, I'm sitting in the office now. I moved to try and get a quieter spot. Um, And I'm looking at it. That's the most recent, so I guess go check that out. There's not... I was thinking about the assassins the other day. There's not... um, Yeah, there's not a real, like, blockbuster book on the assassins. Uh, And I do think it's cool material that might also be interesting in in a scholarly sense. With the fall of the Templars, I don't... Is it overdone? There are blockbuster books about the fall of the Templars, and there's, like, you know... Malcolm Barber has written the sort of generational scholarly work. I think it's just called The Fall of the Templars, isn't it? He doesn't really mess around with titles, Barber. But, you know, that, that there could be more stuff to find in there. It is a huge story that left loads of records. So, and, you know, it happened in lots of places. So you can zero in on a sort of a subcategory of Fall of the Templars stuff um i with the assassins you're gonna to do serious research i think you're going to need arabic and probably some other you're gonna need quite a few languages because the story is syria iran really so and then the you know the latin states so that's um, that's a consideration, but a good subject, good subject. A.D. Marshall, is the Wolves trilogy going to be your only venture into fiction, or do you think this will be the start? Who knows, A.D.? Um, I've got one more to write in the trilogy, and I'm ha- having a mini break to do my book about Henry V between books two and three. Um, and then we'll take a view after book three. Did I enjoy it did other people enjoy it uh do i have another idea do uh should we just leave it at that should we you know i don't know i don't know i don't know i've what i'll say is the way i think about it now is i've got lots of different media at my disposal at the moment, or now, um, that can be realistically considered as vehicles for stories I think of. Okay, that's that's quite a tortured um, way of saying, I come up with a story, or an area I'm interested in. Let's say it's the assassins. It's not. Don't worry, Shanamaya. Um, when I was at the start of my career, that would be like, okay, I'm, I'm really just my, my vehicle for stories is nonfiction books. And now I can think, well, what would the assassins make? Would it be a good nonfiction book? Would it be a good sort of piece of long form journalism? Would it be an interesting podcast series? Is this a TV series? And now added to all that, is this a novel or novel series? And so it's nice to have the option because, um, different stories can be treated in different ways and uh, I think it's, and some of them are more suited to particular 
narrative vehicles than others. Some of them could be, you know, explored over multiple narrative vehicles. Anyway, I, I've, now I've got fiction as an option, um, I might come up with an idea and go, you know what, I, I, I think this is better suited to a novel series than it is to a non-fiction series. And that was certainly the true. That's certainly the case about with the story that is es- the Essex Dogs trilogy. It would have made a not particularly, I think, uh, fulfilling, interesting or commercially successful non-fiction project, but it seems to have had legs as a fiction project. So there we go. Um, Tom Schwartz wants me to get into modern politics do I want to lose all my readers and listeners uh, in one fell swoop Tom I'll read the questions do you think Putin will outlive Biden I really don't know Um, do you think Twitter will survive Musk yes do you think uh, and I, I think, but actually, I think the framing of that question is slightly wrong. Um, I don't think Musk is an existential threat to Twitter per se. Um, uh, he's going to turn it into something different, and whether it sort of withers on the vine like MySpace or Bebo thereafter, or flourishes in a different form to that in which it was conceived, I I wouldn't want to predict. And I think Elon Musk, for all his um, unpopularity among certain groups, um, does know quite a lot about business. And I also think that if he uh, gets this fantastically wrong and blows it up, then it will be $44 dollars extremely well spent because this is going to sound somewhat curmudgeonly but i'm beginning to think that social media in general twitter in particular although somewhat being used up by tiktok lie at the root of the debasement of all culture as things stand and i would not lament for one second their passing hmm do you think the USA will be a democracy such as it is in 2050? Um, I'm a historian, mate. Not Mystic Meg. Uh, if Charles arm wrestled Trump, what would be the outcome? Trump would cheat uh, <laughs> and win, therefore, uh, and then boast about it. And even if he lost uh, because his cheating somehow it backfired or didn't work, which would be a, a fairly signature Trump move. He would then proclaim loudly that he'd won, tell everyone that he'd won, while simultaneously saying he was robbed of the contest, even though he won, and uh, that and make up some grand conspiracy theory that didn't really add up. It was a series of interconnected leading questions which actually led nowhere. I wish I hadn't got into answering your questions now, Tom. And Tom Schwartz also says, uh, question five, City or Real Madrid? That's a, that's a football question. Well, one all from the first leg, second leg's tonight. Assuming I get round to posting this uh, as soon as I've recorded it. And I fancy City. Uh, they are clearly the most talented team in Europe. That being said, Real Madrid are extremely canny and just know how to win and 
uh, it would be quite a city move, even uh, in this incarnation, for them somehow to mess it up yet again. <clears throat> but then they will. How do you like Pasadena, says Joy? When I lived in California, it was one of my favourite places. I enjoyed it. I was so jet-lagged. I don't think I've ever been so jet-lagged as when I was in Pasadena giving a talk a couple of weeks ago. Man, my head was swimming. Totally swimming. But I, I enjoyed what I saw of it. Enjoyed the, I was staying in West Hollywood and I enjoyed the drive in traffic over to Pasadena because we went through some... Where did we go? We went through some mad scenery. Some valley or other. Like I say, I was I was so jet lagged I didn't really know where I was. But yeah, good it was good stuff. Thank you for everyone who came. <sighs> Hypothetical Cynthia Seaton Rogers here. If Matilda that's uh, the future Empress Matilda not the future from where we stand now, but you, you see what I mean. If Matilda had been named co monarch by Henry the First this is so we're talking about Matilda, daughter of Henry the First. And 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 mother of Henry II. If Matilda had been named co-monarch by Henry I and became Matilda the young queen, would it have changed ever anything? Um, right, so had... Well, Henry I did sort of try and do this, don't forget. So Henry I has his son, William, proclaimed, uh, recognised as William the Etheling, which is more or less what uh, Henry II did with Henry the Young King. Yes, I know there was a formal coronation with Henry the Young King, blah, blah. But, of course, William the Etheling dies almost immediately. What does Henry I then do? Well, he sort of does do this with Matilda. He gets all the barons to swear fealty to her as his heir. I mean, would a, a formal coronation have changed very much about that? I don't know. They're they're aping French tradition, really, aren't they? And if we think about... um, You've still got to go through, then, with a second formal coronation. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But I think, actually, the the novelty of having a daughter formally crowned as co-monarch would have struck Henry I had he considered it as more hassle than it was worth. He went as far as he could to get the effect that he wanted. I don't, it's great. That's a, that's a really good question. That's a really, really good question. Thank you, Cynthia. Um, sorry if the answer is a bit woolly, because uh, I thought I knew the answer when I started answering, and then realised I didn't. There, in a nutshell, is the entire practice of doing history. Hey, Shane Bat. Big up Shane Bat each and every time. Have you read Edwin Pace's book? Came out in 2021. The Long War for Britannia, 367 to 664. No, I haven't. I've not really been on an early medieval tip since I was in the foothills of Powers and Thrones. I know I know. Shane Bat is a big fan of, of the early Middle Ages, late antiquity. Um, so, yeah, okay, I'll pick it up. Uh, Shane says, if you have read it, Huge if, which we now know the answer to. Do you agree with Pace that Vortigern is just a titular name for Ambrosius Aurel- Aurelianus? Um, I do not have a position on that yet, but let me have a... Uh, let me pick that up. Let me shove that on my heaving to-be-read pile. 
Um, Dom Mack. Hi, Dan. Just finished Harlequin by Bernard Cornwell. I was interested in the difference in approach he took to the Black Prince. I, I think you mean from my approach in Essex Dogs. Is there any historical evidence he was, as you portrayed him, brackets in Essex Dogs, those are my brackets, uh, a spoilt brat and a bit of a turd? I'm projecting backwards, right? So my, my, what I'm doing with the Black Prince in Essex Dogs and in Wolves of Winter, the sequel which comes out in October, as you know, um, is projecting backwards from the duality of what the Black Prince became, which is on the one hand chivalric hero, on the other hand plainly a monster. Um, Sack of Limoges, etc. Uh, a sort of violent brute. Not, not, you know, that's the that's kind of the job. But but for us now, there does seem to be an enormous um, paradox, discrepancy, disparity between those two things. And so, what I'm trying to do is is play a very long game with the Black Prince, which is to show him having formed really one of those parts of his personality a lot earlier than the other, and and thereby leave room for um, for growth and change by the end of the trilogy although not by the end of book two uh i I was uh, a thought flashed into my mind and per uh whose question was it per chris ball's question earlier on i thought shall i write this down but no let's just see if it sticks i thought wow what if the black prince is a viewpoint character in book three Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? What if we grab somebody who's not a dog and make them a viewpoint character? I don't know. I need to think about that. I've got a few months to think about it. Let me know what you think, if you think anything about that, if you're still listening indeed. I'm going to Scotland soon, not me, Jill Hagen. Which underrated or overrated historical site is a must-see? Scotland. I like St Andrews, I tell you that much. Big fan of St Andrews. Um, just the town in general, and the little sort of the ruins of the is it the the, the, the ruins? What am I thinking of? St Andrews? Is it a cathedral? Uh, am I gonna uh, St Andrews? Let's get it right. Yeah, the, the St Andrews Cathedral is what it's called. I thought it might be called something else. It's the ruins. The very very. Uh, stark ruins of St Andrew's Cathedral, uh, which is uh, sort of pretty close to the coast. Wow, you want to see that at sunrise and sunset? God damn. Go there. Also, St Andrew's is just great, and there's a lovely bookshop called Toppings there, which you can enjoy. What was I going to say? Uh, oh, yes, other places. Stirling. I mean, then then there's Stirling Castle, Edinburgh Castle, pretty much everything in Edinburgh. Um, I enjoyed, years ago, I went up to... I did a little uh, five-minute film as part of a TV show all about the National Trust. Secrets of the National Trust, I think the show was called. And I was one of a roster of presenters, and I went up to the Inner Hebrides, to Fingal's Cave bit of a mission to get there but the mission is a good mission um how do you get there oban ferry to the isle of mull drive across mull take another boat out to one of these little islands where you've got fingal's cave which is the sort of scottish end of the giant's causeway incredible volcanic formations uh, really like mad echoey weird sonically interesting caves 
dolphins racing along beside the boat as you go, oh, yeah, get up to Fingal's Cave, I reckon. Worth a visit. Um, Valerie, listening to the Rest is History podcast a lot, I'm getting the impression every historian now is writing children's books. Yes, we're regressing, I'm afraid. Uh, Would you ever consider doing that? What would be the biggest challenges if you did? I'm not considering it currently, let's just say that. Uh, Yes, I note that uh, certain historians um, are writing children's books. And... Okay, cool. Uh, I think, you know, it's much, much harder than it sounds. And uh, a bad children's book, I believe, is much worse than a bad adult's book and your audience will sniff you out in a shot. Um, I, I probably, you know, if we're going, if we're aiming at a somewhat... I, look, well, I try to make the books that I write accessible to um, as broad an age range as possible. And although, no, you're probably not reading um, Powers and Thrones to your six-year-old at bedtime... I think an intelligent 12-year-old should be able to pick up some of that book, if not all of that book. So I already aim at a wide age range, but if I was going to narrow in on a younger age range, I'd be more interested in young adult than uh, than children's. I just, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say any more than that. The year 1099 keeps popping up in history, says Barbara Kogerman. What was in the air or on the ground that made this year so pivotal? Well, the First Crusade, surely. Um, or the, the fall of Jerusalem to the First Crusaders. It's, you know, it's like the neutron bomb that's detonated in Western medieval history. Everyone at the time thinks it's, you know, this is like one of those big turning points. The millennium had passed, right, and 99 years previously without the end of the world. But this really feels like a something seismic. Um, so the first crusade, the first crusade. Brody Marshall, oh, oh God, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to answer this. Who do you reckon is the most misunderstood historical person? I don't know. I can construct a league table, and a most misunderstood um, is quite a tricky metric to assign. Do we mean most misunderstood in their own lifetime? Or do we mean most misunderstood by general people right now, currently? I think the first question is slightly easier to answer than the second, but only by way of a good example rather than here is my definitive pick, if that makes any sense. So a good example, an example I give quite a lot, is Frederick II, Hohenstaufen, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the man who uh, was a great polymath, um, an extraordinary politician, uh, and brought peace to the Middle East, as we'd call it in today's terms. He negotiated a sort of power-sharing agreement, um, the return of uh, Christian governance to Jerusalem, negotiated that with Al-Kamil, the Ayyubid sultan in Egypt, um, yeah, would have thought they'd give the guy the Nobel Peace Prize. But no, he gets excommunicated four times. 
I think Cohen Staufen pretty misunderstood in his own lifetime by pe- the people who mattered, i.e. the papacy. Or maybe all too well understood, I don't know. Very tricky question. Thank you, Brody, for uh, scrambling my brain. Alex has a week's holiday coming up. I want to go to at least one historical site, says Alex. Top of my list is Temple Church. See my boy, William Marshall. Or Dover slash Warwick Castle. Would you throw any others in the mix to make my decision harder? Well, do a little tour. Start in Dover. Go to London. Take in the Temple Church. Whiz round your pick of Westminster Abbey, the Tower of London, if you want big hitters. Um... You know, don't be shy of going to the refurbished National Portrait Gallery when that reopens imminently. Can't remember exactly the date, but soon. Um, get the train up to Warwick. Go to Warwick Castle. Jobs are good. You're in the then you're in the region of going to Kenilworth as well. Um, probably, in, I mean, not in as, as spanking pristine a condition as Dover Castle, but in its day, the, probably the next toughest. Uh, stronghold castles wise in England surrounded by water oh, very very difficult to, to even consider assaulting how long you got I mean then, then I would, I'm would. i I'm a big fan of Lincoln and York if you want to head in that direction oh endless 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 choices for you but if you only want to go to one well go to Temple Church sounds like you want to do that um valerie's got another question about the dead after a battle um i assume bodies were buried in a mass grave yep some were but were any bodies returned to their families yes i mean it's a it's a pretty uh it's pretty uh, what's the word um, can't think. My mind's, mind's gone blank for the word. I mean, the richer and more important you were, the more chance you've got of being buried with honours. Think around. Th- my mind naturally, in its Essex dogs mode, goes to Cressy. You range from Blind King John of Bohemia, whose body is is taken up and buried with great honour and procession and formality, to uh, probably a lot of bodies just slung in pits. And then there's a range in between. The more sort of recognisable and important you were, the more chances of your body being um, taken back to uh, relatives, the more of a sort of um, Essex dog type faceless pleb you were, the more chances of you just being slung into a, a pit. How the hell did people deal with hangovers in the Middle Ages and before, says Femke? Same way as now. There is uh, there are there are only two remedies. One is rehydrate and wait it out, and the other one is keep going. And it's it it probably splits down the middle. But it, given the Middle Ages, somewhat more alcohol was drunk routinely at a weak level, um, just as a, a you know at all times of the day. Probably a bit more of the keep going than the dry out. Well, not dry out, rehydrate. Is it possible, says Thomas Eaton, to write a biography of a medieval person? That is one with real psychological insight rather than simply a life and times approach. Well, wow, yeah, great question. That's on my mind because I'm doing a sort of biography of sorts of um, of Henry V. Yeah, it's difficult. That's the big challenge for the Middle Ages, the big, 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 big challenge. You need 
I suppose by definition for the psychological side of biography to have a, a relatively large volume of um, of that person's own words in which you have them reflecting on things that are happening to them. And so probably by definition in most cases, no. Uh, it's not possible to write a modern biography of a medieval person. So, but but obviously, the genre of biography, the um, the writing of a life, is something that is not limited to people with kind of modern diaries. So, uh, I'd say yes, it's possible to write the biography of a medieval person, but your definition of biography obviously changes according to the times in which that person lived. How was that for us sitting on the fence? How was the concert, says Kim Wheeland? I presume you mean uh, Iggy Pop and the Losers playing in the Hollywood Palladium a few weeks ago, which I went to LA to see. Uh, it was absolutely sensational. They played most of uh, the Losers album. They played uh, all the, the great Iggy hits. It was a short, sharp, one-hour, 20 show. Uh, it's a real... Honest Goodness Supergroup, Duff McKagan on bass, Chad Smith from the Chili's on drums, uh, Jamie Hinch from the Kills playing rhythm guitar, uh, Andrew Watts, super producer of Wunderkind, uh, god king of all rock and roll um, at the moment, um, playing guitar, plays guitar like Prince, looks like Pat Smear, the guy's a little legend, and then Slash wandered on for the last two songs, Walk on the Wild Side and, and I Want to Be Your Dog. I mean... And then it's just Iggy. Iggy, at 76, throwing himself around like he's 36. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, what's the best movie? Not necessarily your favourite, but objectively the best, asks Louise. Jessica Causey says Aliens and Terminator 2, and I can't fault that answer. Um... Amy Rodriguez, since I'm a stalker of all the cool new historical writers out there, I couldn't help notice that you do a lot of mentoring, so to speak. I've heard Christine Morgan and Joanne Paul both refer to you as someone who had a profound effect on their work. Gosh, well, that's nice of them to say so. I can imagine there's plenty more. Who's out there right now you think is going to be a breakout star? Um, and then more flattery. Thank you, Amy. I'm not going to um, uh, read out flattery but I do appreciate it, and I can't get enough of it, so keep it coming. Um, who's, well, I mean, she's in the process of breaking out right now, but uh, Honor Cargill-Martin, whose new biography of Messalina is, is, came out last week, is brilliant, totally brilliant. Um, and I went to Honor's book launch last week, and there was a little crew there of the future, really, who was there? You had Susan Genusis, who writes about the Old West. Her book came out, the first book came out last year about the uh, the Bender family murders. That's uh, called Hell's Half Acre. Highly recommend that. Luke Pepperer, who came on the subscri a subscriber episode of This Is History podcast, historian of Africa. Um, really nice guy, very, very brilliant. Uh, who else is in that little gang? Um, there's Daisy Dixon, um, who's a brilliant philosopher of art, who's working on her debut at the moment. Who else, who else, who else is in the sort of brilliant up-and-coming category? 
There's loads. There's loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads. And um, it's wonderful. You know, there's, there's the future of history, whether it's um, historians who have a sort of parallel career in academia and trade writing or purely popular-facing historians is really, really bright. And there's loads of cool people out there. It's nothing to do with me. Um, but I am glad to know them, some of them. Um, and it's one of the greatest pleasures in my professional life to see people's careers flourish. Good people, talented people, people who deserve it, people who work hard, um, to see them do well. There's nothing nicer to see. Um, so, yeah, all power to them. Um, did Richard Lionheart have an illegitimate daughter, says Elizabeth Daly Croft? I don't know. Uh, the writer offered no sources, says uh, Elizabeth, without naming the writer. Have you heard of that? Uh, no. Tell me more. If you could pick one favourite, says Joe Carr, real-life historical figure from 1066 through 1485, who would it be? I think we know the answer. It's Dick Whittington, your friend of mine, Richard Whittington, Mayor of London four times, uh, Mayor of Calais once, uh, great survivor of the Revolution of 1399, close to the courts of Richard II, Henry IV, helped arrange some of the war financing for Agincourt, uh, died in 1423, left uh, uh, all his fortune to good charitable causes in the city of London. What a hero. We love Dick Whittington. Weirdly now a pantomime character, famous for his uh, relationship with his cat. <sighs> Here's Ben Neville. Ancient Rome has a real bonus of having very readable, brackets, translated histories as primary sources. Livy, Plutarch and the lads. With an S, not a Z. So once you've read the narrative histories and more academic texts, you can head into the OGs. Okay, good setup. What's your question, Ben? Is there a medieval source that is enjoyable and fairly approachable for a first deep dive into the primary material? Oh my god. Big time. I mean, that creek was me wandering uh, across to my section of my bookshelves, which is chronicles and primary sources. I mean, what are the, the well, if you like Plantagenets, go read William Marshall's um, The History of William Marshall, you know, the biography in, in verse, in a great translation from the Anglo-Norman Text Society, uh, by Hold, uh, edited by Holden, Gregory and Crouch. That's a great place to start. I've got, I'm looking at my 19th century 12-volume edition of Jean Froissart, uh, absolutely sensationally brilliant. Uh, I've got the second edition, published 1806, Thomas Jones. But you can get a neat little Penguin Classics um, abridged version if you want a little deep dive into Froissart. Froissart was brilliant. Froissart is sort of a, a, a medieval journalist, really. Um, if you want to go into... Um, Where's it? Who else is good? If you if you like chronicles, I mean, go read to Matthew Paris. Had a sort of front row seat uh, in the thirteenth century, and very very brilliant chronicler of his times and other times. Uh, if you want to read, um, 
I mean, I love Boccaccio if you want to read sort of stories from the 14th century, you know, written in the wake of the Black Death. Uh, this is me looking around to see if there's anything else. I mean, if you want to, you know, first-hand accounts from the Wars of the Roses, the Paston Letters are very good. Uh, you know, Heimskringler, if you want some Viking saga stuff. Oh, tons. Every bit as... Uh, Every bit as engaging, exciting, um, and weird and wonderful as the uh, the, uh, the ancient Roman milieu. Roseanne Voltaire said, "History never repeats itself. Man always does. How do you compare present-day leaders with their historical counterparts?" I did a little. Well, <sighs> yes. I suppose this speaks in some ways to the difference between the past and history, right? The past does not repeat itself. Uh, per Voltaire, there are there is a sort of small bandwidth of human behaviours and there tends to be a sort of limited um, range of responses to certain common categories of situation. So you will see human behaviours repeated in some form or other uh, or echoed or mirrored um, over the ages. But this idea that history repeats itself I think mixes up history and the past because history is, nuts and bolts here, the study of the past, not the past itself. Um, And historical trends somewhat repeat themselves and approaches to history somewhat repeat themselves. Um, and historians definitely repeat themselves. Um, so that it's not it's, it's quite a deceptive um, and baggy phrase, history. History repeats itself. History never repeats itself. As regards comparing present-day leaders with their historical counterparts, I did a little bit of this in Powers and Thrones, which was my big history of the Middle Ages, in the footnotes, so it wouldn't annoy people who who don't like that stuff. So go back over that book if you want some um, some light uh, joshing around. I think Elon makes an appearance in a footnote in Powers and Thrones. I think Trump might do as well, among many others. Did you find yourself, says Andrea Kingsbury, with any writer's block while writing Wolves of Winter? Was there a point in the writing that you had more trouble with than you expected? If so, how did you overcome it? Excited to hear about your process for the second book. Brackets, no spoilers. Can't wait to read it. Writer's block, no, I don't think so. But I, I did get uh, bogged down with wondering, with, with trying to f- um, impose a structure on the story. So with Essex Dogs, the first novel... It's a linear story. They land, they march, they fight, they march, they march, they fight, they fight, they march, they fight, they fight, they march. You know, that's that's what happens. They go from place to place, and there's what I would call a lot of narrative imperative baked into the story itself. So with Essex Dogs, it was a good place to start, particularly for a first-time novelist, as I was then, uh, because whenever you don't really know what to do, your task is a pretty um, clearly defined one which is let's see the real events through the eyes of these um, people who we normally don't get to see it through uh so that is that's a manageable task you know if you if you're 
if you're stuck, well, what happened the next day or the next week? Let's find the compelling, the the next compelling bit of the story and just tell that, and then link that the things together. Um, it's been a, 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 and also the thing with Essex dogs is oh look, someone's printing something right next to me. How irritating. Um, the other thing with Essex dogs is that. Uh, it's a story that takes place over six weeks. Oh, no, I'm printing something. Look at that. I've annoyed myself. Uh, why don't I pause the printer? Um, the other thing with Essex Dogs is that a story that takes place over sort of six, seven weeks. And the uh, the frame of the story was quite tight to the individuals. So it's very granular kind of experiential uh, style of storytelling. And that's easily doable within the space of a 100, 110,000-word novel um, when, when you're dealing with a small time frame. Because you can almost go day by day. Essex Dog skips a week, two weeks here or there, but it's almost day by day. Wolves of Winter is set at the Siege of Calais. That's not a spoiler. Uh, the Siege of Calais lasts 11 months. I don't think that's a spoiler. Uh, and the Siege of Calais is really the business of them going to Calais sitting outside Calais and waiting for Calais to starve. You know, increasingly tightening a blockade, but waiting for Calais to starve. Now, there's not much by way of narrative imperative in that. In fact, it's it's anti-imperative. Um, so the, the challenge that I had to sort of find my way through with the Siege of Calais in Wolves of Winter was how to give a feeling of push forward to the story when the world isn't pushing forward or that, you know, the people, the people aren't going anywhere. So that was a, a, a bit, uh, and then to somehow keep it within the, the realms of what was going on. What are the events of the siege of Calais and the events of the siege of Calais? And they don't feel very sort of progr- They don't progress really. Just a bunch of stuff happens here and there. And then the siege finishes. So to link a, together a story, that was that was a tougher thing. But that, that was also a, you know, a good second novel challenge, which is like, push yourself, develop your craft, learn a bit more. And so what we have in The Siege of Calais is the dogs exploring worlds. And I, I did a lot more real deep dive digging. Do you dive and dig? That's a mix of a metaphor, isn't it? I'm just going to go diving and do some digging. I can imagine going diving and doing some welding just about, but diving and digging, you, look, you know what I mean. I went and found a load of stuff, for example, about medieval pirates, um, because how was Calais supplied during the English siege? Well, there was a pirate called Jean Maron uh, who ran a, uh, the whole operation, a sort of Berlin airlift-style operation from um, Dieppe, Sangat, nearby, relatively nearby uh, places on the coast running supplies through the English blockade into the besieged city. Uh, and I found that that was quite a compelling world, and that the headquarters was a pub called the Tin Jar, not far from Calais. So that's quite a compelling world to go off and explore. So there are, there are, there are strange and wonderful worlds to get stuck into. And there's just what does a siege town actually look like? We, we know from Poissard in sketch what the siege town that the English built outside Calais to house their army looked like, but let's let's get down and dirty in its streets um you know and finally i would say with regard to getting stuck 
while writing, um, I've learned that whatever the form of writing, the best way to unstick yourself is to get up from the desk, go do some physical activity. And I, I, long dog walks do it for me, as does just go, uh, built a gym literally directly adjacent to my office to so go into the gym and do some yoga or whatever, and, and that usually helps. What's your guilty pleasure book, movie, and or TV show, says Jessica. I have fewer of these than I used to. Does, I don't know if this counts as a guilty pleasure, but i tell you what, every Thursday night uh, on Sky Sports, which is a UK uh, sports cable network with a number of different channels, uh, I watch the Premier League of Darts. Some of you all in the States might not even know what darts is. Well, more fool you. It's a, it's a noble, noble British. And it's a noble Western European sport. Has contestants from maybe six or seven countries. <laughs> um, mainly in Northwest Europe. Um, and there are, there are eight players who take part in the Premier League every Thursday night. And it's, uh, it's coming to its climax. It's the penultimate night tomorrow up in Aberdeen and then the finals in London on the I think the 25th of May I'm very excited about it very invested in the darts um I used to and but it's been many years now since I was this much of a scumbag but I used to watch quite a lot of reality tv and I was fond of the singing shows x factor being my particular favorite on a Saturday night uh, I was fond I tell you the worst one I probably ever watched I watched a show called Breaking Amish, which had nothing morally to recommend it. It was a, some TV producers basically go into the Amish community and say to some some vulnerable young people, yo, you want to leave? I think they get to leave the Amish community for a year and live with what they call the English and then go back. And they take like a small group of, yeah, pretty vulnerable Amish teenagers off to New York City and then like make fun of them because they've never seen a sidewalk crossing before or whatever. Uh, get them drunk, make them do really like verboten stuff like getting a tattoo or whatever and then send them back to the Amish communities where inevitably they're rejected uh, and then cast into a terrible limbo between the world that's, uh, that they've always known um, which now no longer wants anything to do with them and a world which they don't understand which has no pity or sympathy. Uh, it's a, it's a dr- it was a dreadful show and I f- loved it. Um, Lucy Lewis has some technical stuff about uh, the crown jewels, which is yeah not not per se my specialty. Um, yeah, I'm I'm probably not your man to uh, to go really deep into the question of what happens to the crown jewels post. Uh, Charles the first these are quite specific questions um, I'll have a think about that and I'll try and get back to you separately um, Valerie wants to know hello Valerie again uh, I finished reading the Templars and I was struck by how the Templars and Hospitallers seemed so similar while they were in operation almost like twin entities but of course Philip the fourth only targeted the Templars for destruction in the end not the Hospitallers why were they treated so differently did the Hospitallers not have as many assets making them not worth Philip's trouble, or was there some other intrinsic difference? No, I think Philip was going for the Hospitallers next, but never got to it, because the Templars were more difficult to wind up than he imagined, and because he didn't live long enough. 
Um, that's basically the answer, yeah. Uh, had the Templars gone down easier, the Hospitallers would have been next. Pretty certain. Um, Karen... Ooh. My 12-year-old, says Karen Fuller, is studying the Middle Ages in US 6th grade. Do you have some recommendations for younger readers for a somewhat accurate and entertaining picture of that era? We ask our kids to read one book a month during summer break. This might pique her interest. Thanks, Dan. Oh, my God, I'm going to have to go back on my word and write some children's books, aren't I? Um, for younger people about the Middle Ages. Um, oh, man, alive. I'd go to fiction rather than non-fiction. I can't think of anything that that's between horrible histories and, like... You know, as I was saying earlier, books written by people like myself that are aimed at a wide audience reaching down to intelligent 12-year-old. But I, I suppose, yeah, try her out with, um, with, you know, the Cornwells of this world. Um, that's probably the thing to do, I think. Go check, yeah. Go go find some or find some goods, you know, sort of Arthurian or Robin Hood retellings. That's the way I'd I'd uh, I'd head. I think. Um. Wow, and there's only one question left. Maureen, is there a specific UK retailer to pre-order from? This is Wolves of Winter, as there was with Essex Dogs. It'd be super fun if there was another special edition in the works. I think there will be another special edition in the works, but I can't confirm it just yet. I think, well, I know that you can currently or pre-order Wolves of Winter from the regular edition from Waterstones, possibly from WH Smith, almost certainly from Amazon UK. Did you like the coronation? I really liked the coronation. I really did. My goodness, that 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 concludes uh, all the questions. I think. No, it doesn't. There are some I didn't get around to. Uh, most of the questions, I think, um, but it certainly concludes an hour of me wittering away. Um, thanks for listening. Well, I'll do another one of these, I guess, soon enough. Not immediately, because uh, I think it's good to leave a little bit of time between them. But I enjoyed that. Uh, if you have any special requests for uh, voice notes, or indeed for uh, articles on Substack, for quizzes, I think we enjoyed the medieval coronation quiz, didn't we? For anything like that, just hit me up, either in the comments on this post, or you can email me at i think the email for this is dan jones or one word at substack.com that'll get to that'll get to me as well all right that was good uh i'm gonna go and do some stuff some other stuff okay that okay with you good thank you bye <laughs>